A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 144 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, and your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman, and with me like the henchman to my mastermind, the EU guru himself, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey folks, how you doing? I'm doing good. I I think the folks out there are doing pretty good. I haven't got any complaints on our Facebook feed. Uh, You know, I have been moving things into this studio left and right. I pulled out a bunch of your stuff yesterday, in fact, Nathan. I got the uh, two-pack Tales of of, uh, Tales number 21 out, and I got your uh, Greater Good book sitting out on the shelf now. I've been getting so many things pulled out. It's been great. Like Yesterday, I busted open to one of the big boxes. It's one of those Graco even flow stroller size boxes and it's just chock full of episode two toys. I'm like, oh man, where am I gonna put these? <laughs> nice. We've been spending some time basically kind of getting things, uh, it's, I guess, sort of settled in here. Um, as of the time we're recording this, which is September 28th, uh, it's been a little less than a week since my wife had her surgery. She had her gallbladder taken out. Uh, so a lot of it's been kind of making sure she's taken care of and Um, Some of the stuff I've been trying to kind of put off until later, things like some of the videos to record for YouTube and such, I finally had a chance to do just because I needed some way to to clear off some space. And clearing off the space happened to clear off the place where I usually record those, little table that's got my X-Wing custom-made, not-so-great board sitting on it and such. So um, basically just kind of getting back into the swing of things here in a very, very busy time. Uh, speaking of busy, one of the things that slipped by me, thought folks might find this mildly amusing, um, we talked recently about Darth Maul, Son of Dathomir. It's our episode that's being released through this podcast and through uh, the feed for Rebels Roundtable. Uh, the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, of course, facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable, uh, Twitter at Rebels Round or RebelsRoundtable.com. Uh, by the time you hear this episode, our episode about Spark of Rebellion and the Four Little Shorts should be out. The first true episode of Rebels Roundtable beyond all those lead-up things that we're doing. And it's, it slipped past me Then we were talking about the different covers and whatnot uh, for Son of Dathomir. This was another example of the horrid state of the U.S. postal system in my area. Um, you may have heard me complain, especially if you're, you know, catch me on Facebook, about how, you know, half the time I would get issues of the Clone Wars magazine and they'd be beaten up. I never did get Star Wars Magazine number one in the mail after they claimed repeatedly that it, it was out. No, it's not out. Yes, it is out. Here you go. Here's another copy of it. No, that's an episode. That's an issue of the Clone Wars from a while back. Why did you think that was Star Wars Magazine number one, etc.? Um, and I order my comics through things from another world, and they come in these hard cardboard mailers that they're not supposed to bend. But probably oh, a little less than half the time, maybe 40% of the time, they show up severely damaged, and I have to order a replacement 
or they wind up showing up partially damaged, and I just have to sort of deal with it or flatten it out some other way. And in fact, uh-huh. recently I helped John Jackson Miller uh, design an X-Wing scenario based on part of a new dawn that'll show up at some events he's holding this month. Uh, and as a thanks, he sent me a couple of signed uh, comics and sent me a signed copy of Kenobi. And I had to flatten the comics back out because of the way the Postal Service handled it. So uh, so Jeremy Barlow, the guy that wrote, or at least adapted, uh, Son of Dathomir, was the guy that hired me to write for Tales, the, the comic that you mentioned there. And I had made it a point back with the original EU, the Legends continuity, that I was going to get assigned a copy of the two uh, beginning points, so to speak, of uh, uh, Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire and of Tom Beach's Dark Empire Number 1. So I figured, you know, it'd be cool to do it this time around, too. So having had a friend of mine able to get a signed copy of A New Dawn, uh, the advanced reader's edition and everything, I was excited for the idea of getting Son of Dathomir number one signed, because it may not be Marvel, but it's the first official story group canon comic. I want to do it all again this time. So I go through all the trouble, I contact Jeremy, see if it's okay to send him one, I order an extra copy that thankfully shows up not mangled at all, or at least only a tiny, tiny bit mangled on a corner, and then turn around and send it to himself, address stamped, you know, postal service, uh, uh, priority mail, first class envelope, all that stuff, everything done and ready to go, send it to him, boards inside it to keep it stiff and everything, and it finally shows up on his end. And he sends me a picture of it and asks, is there someone at the Postal Service who has it in for you? Because it shows up like it made its route uh, to him on the West Coast through Iraq, Afghanistan, and perhaps some ISIL territory. (laughs) Torn to freaking shreds. Specifically bought for that purpose, sent out with all this extra packing material, completely freaking trashed um, by the time that it gets there. Thank you, U.S. Postal Service. Kiss mine. Um, thankfully, he was kind enough to take one of his, uh, uh, comp copies, the ones that you get from having been the writer, they send you a few, you know, kind of show off and keep for yourself. Uh, he was able to take one of those, sign it for me, and mail that back, thankfully, without any kind of damage happening to it by the time that it got here. Um, but just for those who think that the Postal Service stuff is just kind of a fluke, over and over again, this is the kind of crap that is happening with us. I have no idea why. But it seems as though we either have angered the gods of the Postal Service or someone at the Postal Service absolutely despises us for no particular reason and decides to destroy much of what we receive and every so often something that we send out. But thankfully, among those, I finally do have that signed copy there uh, amid the collection. Thank goodness. You know, you should almost... uh put the stuff that's coming to you from Star Wars and stuff in Jody's name and see if anything's different. <laughs> oh, we've had stuff go to her. We've had stuff go to her post office box. They all wind up the same. They all Whoa. wind up beaten up or not arriving um, or at times uh, left sitting out on the porch in the rain. Um, it's wow. And it doesn't seem to matter which postal person is delivering them around here. We've got about three different ones. Uh, the most consistent one, the one that these days – tries to make sure my stuff doesn't get destroyed, was the guy that just randomly decided a few years ago, oh, he doesn't live here anymore, and stopped all my mail and sent everything back. As I was trying to, I was was starting to write for the Wars franchise and had ordered all this stuff to help me learn about the Wars franchise, the packages of all the stuff was being sent back. Oh, no. (laughs) I had to go through this weekend and get in touch with Miniature Market and figure out what was going on with my Rebel Aces X-Wing Miniatures kit because it got sent to me. 
and somehow the tracking number didn't wind up on their website and it had been over a week since it had shipped to me through priority mail what was the, what what happened it was buried underneath a bunch of boxes up in our apartment office because they delivered it didn't even try to deliver it to the apartment cuz Jody would have been here just stuck it up there in the office and buried it with crap and never put a notice in my mailbox idiot incompetent wow. we always i always make the joke um uh, depending on where we're talking about. So I guess the Postal Service this time, the U.S. Postal Service, where competence is no longer a job requirement. <laughs> In any event, um, speaking of, of bumbling henchmen and things that go awry... at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. Now this episode, we plunge into Dark Horse Comics' Knights of the Old Republic, Volume 6, Vindication, by John Jackson Miller. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. You know, not a whole lot to say that isn't full of spoilers for this one, so I guess, just broadly speaking, uh, we're looking at an arc that has, I guess from a creative standpoint, from a, uh, a creation standpoint, uh, solid storytelling and generally meh artwork. Uh, not horrible artwork, but it seems as though some of these artists love uh, the idea that everyone must grimace. Everyone that's muscular must be gigantic. And don't worry about proportions or anything. Just draw everything as if you're looking through a funhouse lens. It no longer matters. Um, thankfully, the art gets better uh, by the time we get into parts of Vindication that really matter. But especially in Turnabout uh, and Exalted, you're kind of scratching your head like, what are they thinking as they're drawing this stuff? Um, Story-wise, this is where we pick up from Vector, right? The whole idea of Vector, we'd said, at least according to Dark Horse, was it was supposed to sort of have a big impact on each story that it's in and change the course of those comics. Knights of the Old Republic, Dark Times, Rebellion, and Legacy. Uh, Dark Times and Rebellion, nyeh, right? We went through and reviewed those, and there wasn't a whole lot of impact except for the fact that it killed the Rebellion series because it just ended right there. In Legacy, if you want to think of that series as having two climaxes, then... Legacy Vector was the first of them, and it'll take all the way up to the end of the series for the next. With Knights of the Old Republic, it, you could say that Vector wasn't a climax, but it was the kickstart to get us towards the climax here. The climax, the first of them, is Vindication. After that, it's all building up towards the end of basically another broader storyline that's had seeds put throughout here. In this case, you got Exalted, Part 1 and Part 2. Then you've got Turnabout, which is a single issue, and then you've got Vindication, which is the main storyline of this particular volume, uh, where things finally come to a head. Uh, builds up rather well. Interesting to see that it's coming to an end here. Uh, this actually a lot of times is where I've said that it might have been nice if Knights of the Old Republic had ended here, because it was such a solid high point that as cool as the next climax is that actually ends the series before Knights of the Old Republic War, this really was the high point of the series. Um, that other one only reaches, you know, if this is a 10, the other one reaches maybe like an 8 by the time it's over with. And Knights of the Little Republic War, the less said about that one, the better. Uh, yes, it's a disease. Nope, it's just soup stuck in a helmet dumped on my head. So yeah, probably one of the best 
Knights of the Old Republic volumes that we've got. Story-wise, it's all pretty much going to have to wait for the spoiler territory because of how much there is to it. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, this one is definitely one of the high points of the entire series for me as well. Uh, the art, I'm with you on the aspect that it touches and goes. I love the fact that Brian Ching has his day with it because his is definitely you know, my quintessential when I think of the look of these characters. The way he has drawn them is how I personify them in my mind. So when we get to his stuff, you know, I'm really enjoying that. There's a, a flashback later, which we'll get into next episode, really threw me off. Uh, but the progression of the characters and stuff and where they're at right now and, you know, where we left off from Vector and stuff, I really enjoyed the twist. I, I liked where we were going, watching Jarrell's character, how she was interacting, what was going on with Roland, uh, the two Athorian, the Momo brothers and stuff, the ship. Like, there were, there were references about the ship. Uh when the uh, Republic fleet comes up against them and stuff like I didn't remember the ship being so vicious, but the pilots and stuff were making really cool comments about the ship that Zane had stolen and things like that. And, you know, then you have characters like Hazen that's looking at, at Zane Carrick and, and they start to mention things like Zane's unique force abilities, which, you know, I think they've mentioned it before in earlier stuff, but this is the point where it really starts to come into play what Zane's unique ability really is. And I love the way that they do it with the story. Uh, there are a lot of really cool twists and turns in this. There are a lot of really cool settings that give, uh, you know, like we go to Faroan. Uh, we learn a little bit about the culture there and stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the, the big characters for me in this that really kind of stands out, which is it, it's a subtle standout. You know, I mean, he didn't stand out all the way through the comic. But when I was rereading it plot wise and the story wise, his character had quite the bigger role all around. And that was Griff. Uh, you know, Griff's character really truly was in a lot of respects the mastermind and and this comic really finally puts that too into perspective so there was a lot of moments where things that have been building and stuff it's kind of like you got to connect the dot poster at this point even though you're not quite done you have enough of it to see what you have and appreciate all the hard work and stuff that's gone into this john jackson miller does a really good job of lacing his stories and at this point you're starting to put the bow tie on that shoe man and i i was just excited i was almost kind of worried because it was like okay with an ending this good we still got more story to tell you know how can we trump this and you know as we get to there i i think to a degree me and nathan kind of disagree about some things but it'll be an interesting you know discussion as we go along so, uh, Nathan, I think I, too, am about done with our spoiler-free stuff. Um, you know, I just I, I want to say, again, the concept of what's going on with the Covenant, with the, their ideas about the Sith, and where this is going to leave the Jedi Order in relation with uh, Revan and Revan's group are all really good key elements of this one, and that's part of why I love this one so much. Uh, when this came out, you know, I was waiting for it to tie into the game, and this one, we're finally at that point where you're, like, you're starting to recognize things. Things are clicking. Names are lining up. Uh, places, locations, battles, things like that. And for me, that was like, that was the cream of the crop, man. I was just loving that so much. I was so excited about the series, you know, and then when we finally ended up hearing that it was going to end at 50, I was just being so bummed about that, man. I, I really loved this. I loved what John Jackson was doing, the characters and stuff. It, it was just a good ride. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, now as per the norm lately, we're going to take a look at these individual issue by individual issue as far as summaries go, as opposed to pieces of an issue, so we can kind of compress our time here, uh, get the most bang out of our 
hours, minutes, whatever you want to call it. Um, we're going to take a look here in this episode at the first three issues of this before Vindication actually hits. That's 29, 30, and 31, Exalted Part 1, Exalted Part 2, and then Turnabout. Exalted Part 1, featuring art by Bong Dezo. He continues on into Part 2, and then Turnabout has Alan Robinson doing the artwork. So we pick up in Exalted Part 1. Vector has ended uh, in helping Celeste Morn get into the Obliette thing, the, like the stasis pod thing that's going to carry her forward into dark times and beyond. Uh, Zane has basically shown himself to be the good guy, or a good guy in relation to the Covenant, or at least uh, in relation to Lucian Dre and his stewardship of the Covenant in relation to Zane. A lot of in relation to stuff here. Uh, you know, evil is kind of relative, as is good in this particular series. Um, as it stands, though, she gave him this key, uh, this necklace-looking thing, that he can then use to be able to get into uh, a sanctum called the Sanctum of the Exalted on Odrin, which is basically this storehouse where the Jedi Covenant and its shadow agents have been storing all these Sith artifacts that they found, like what they were planning to do with the Muir Talisman from Vector. And this will allow Zane uh, to get more evidence to use against the Covenant to try to clear his own name. So with that as the setup, we pick up on Coruscant, where we're shocked somewhat uh, to find that Lucian Dre has been offered a position on the Jedi Council. And even though uh, uh, Master Vandar and Master Vrook are not particularly excited about this. They recognize that this uh, is somewhat of a political appointment. This is coming uh, in a big way because of how much uh, uh, money, basically, there is that has been coming in from the Dre estate to charities that other Jedi Council members are a big part of. Uh, and his group, his faction, you could say, within the Jedi, has been feeding off the opposition to the war, the war against the Mandalorians and such. So he sort of maneuvered himself into this position, though we'll find Hazen was mostly the one behind that as far as that's concerned. But for their part, uh, Brooke and Takari are kind of waiting to see what happens. They're looking for more truths about the so-called Padawan massacre, and having Lucian there at least gets him close enough to observe. We jump then uh, to Odrin, home of the Fiorans, where we meet Borjak and other Fiorans. Basically, they... They're this species, it's it's Spelm's species from the Jedi Covenant. Basically, the blue species kind of get the head tail thing going on, a Nim from Starfighter, essentially. Yeah. Um, but as they get older, they get bigger and they get stronger. So in their society, whoever is the oldest is the strongest and is the so-called exalted. And there is this building called the Sanctum of the Exalted that no one is allowed to actually enter except for the exalted uh, himself. That thanks to Felm being the oldest, has been opened up to the Jedi Covenant now so that they can store all those Sith artifacts there and have it be protected by the Fiorans outside. Uh, so we have sort of a new societal dynamic that we are introduced to. Uh, the Moomaw Willowaw arrives, bearing our heroes, uh, with Jeriel basically pretending to be a Jedi woman, pretending to be Celeste Morn, despite the fact that only her face has been painted, uh, her legs have not, so it's kind of odd when she's fighting and you see two different skin tones on the character. Um, but she talks her way, as Celeste, into getting inside uh, the Sanctum of the Exalted, uh, along with the Moo Moo Brothers bringing along a package that's supposed to be full of artifacts and stuff. It winds up actually being their laundry container, containing a very cramped Griff and Zane, which gets them 
inside the grounds of the sanctum. They then are able to use the key that Celeste gave him to get inside the actual building itself, where they find all of these, uh, these odd nullification cubes or boxes full of Sith artifacts that are said to be green. Uh, the cubes are, although honestly in my copy they look much more yellow than they do yeah, green. Yeah, mine too. Um, but they're basically going through, they're realizing what it is, how dangerous it is, the movie brothers just want to steal some and because it could be weapons and, and use them to make some money and whatnot. Uh, but the idea is they want to record what they're seeing in order to bring that data back to the Jedi Council to expose what the Covenant is doing essentially behind the Jedi Council's back. Um, the problem is that as they uh, make their way out of there, as Zane and Griff are basically trying to cut their way through the, the, the jungle to get away unnoticed since they weren't supposed to be there in the first place, uh, Borjak discovers them, and he doesn't know exactly what's going on with them, but outsiders are not welcome, and these two were never even part of what he thinks uh, was the Jedi Covenant's mission there, again, assuming that it was Celeste that was actually bringing uh, new artifacts there. So they're captured, uh, Zane's lightsaber is taken from him, uh, but things go from bad to worse as the issue ends, because as part of his duty to come here and check on the arrival, supposedly, of the Muir Talisman and Celeste, neither of which, of course, are there because they're inside that stasis container, you know, way down at the bottom of, I guess it was Jebel, uh, Feln arrives, of course, our member of the Jedi Covenant, who is the Exalted. Uh, he arrives and is quite thrilled to see Zane because now he can take Zane down for the Covenant. Uh, I only come on business, and your business is over, little Padawan, permanently. Dun, dun, dun. End of the first issue. Yeah, and Griff's face kind of sells it right there. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Jarrell having the, the double skin tone. I picked up on that immediately, too. Uh, you know, she's kicking the furrow, and, and his, her legs kind of lash out. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. Is, you know, I didn't put together it was her at first, and that was the first clue. So I was like, oh, okay. That's obviously Jarrell hiding out. So, I mean, part of me was like, okay – Maybe it was supposed to be one of those things where you're looking at it and you thought maybe she was wearing, like, skin leggings or something, you know. Or maybe that was just specifically there to let the readers know, you know, yeah, that's Jarrell you're going to find out here in a minute. Uh, but I like the fact that they touch on the fact that, that the third time's the charm for her when it comes to impersonating Jedi and things like that. Uh, there's some references that the Momos talk about where they're talking about the Exalted and stuff. Dom goes, uh, um, can a Jedi be a king of something? And... You know, it brought up that, that great point. You know, I mean, we've we've seen in the history of Star Wars, you know, the Jedi aren't supposed to be leaders of these type of things and stuff. Uh, Kai Adamundi, he had a special reputation with, you know, his people where he was able to go home and, and have wives and kids and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there have been others. Uh, what brand, I believe, was was royalty. There was a few different ones that have hailed from different places. You got Tanelka uh, in the New Jedi Order and stuff. So there are all these different cases where you have situations where Jedi have kind of walked two different lines. And the unique position for Flynn was kind of cool in that regard. Uh, you know, I, I make no secret of the fact that, that Nim from the uh, Starfighter game was a character I always loved. So, you know, seeing the Ferroans show up in that way, I was just really excited about them. You know, I guess they're they're Fiorans, not Ferroans. Is that right? Fiorans and yeah, Fel. Fiorin. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like the Fiorans. They're they're a really cool race. They kind of remind me of Kit Fisto species, which later in in the whole trade paperback when we get the flashback and stuff, you see Kit Fisto species uh, with a lady. And I, I thought at first it was the same planet. It took me a second. I was like, oh wait, no, that's different. But I, I like the little face uh, catfish tendrils that come down off their little looks like they got a whisker uh, Fu Manchu kind of thing going on and stuff and the way that they smuggled Zane and Griffin was classic because they didn't realize that it was the Momo brothers laundry so when Jarrell opens up her outfit and it's the reveal for her the brothers are like it's our laundry hamper and Griff's like we were in their laundry hamper and Zane's like what you thought that smell was me and you know John Jacksonville does such a good job with these two characters especially the banter between the henchman and the mastermind are definitely some of my favorite moments in this whole entire series. And we got some fun little uh, uh, tidbits dropped in here, things like a reference to the helm of Dathka Grouch and such, just different artifacts being mentioned. I mean, not any of them actually being used at the moment within this particular story, but things that are being mentioned as far as, you know, different artifacts and whatnot, kind of like little tip of the hat to, ooh, what other stories could be out there for the Sith and whatnot. Um well, and that also touches on the fact that these guys are classifying these things. Mm-hmm. You know, they talked about it, uh, it was encased in grade three nullification resin. Then when it was released, the specimen produ- uh, projects class D emanations through the force, amplifying the wearer's abilities on scales six and eight. And I was like, ooh, like, I mean, there's nothing to go with that jargon, but I was just, just the wording of, of alone was like enough to get me all excited. Right, and they also mention how uh, the atmospheric disturbances, the storms and stuff that are going on that the Fiorans think is because of something going on with the Sanctum uh, is actually because of a Sith artifact that happens to be there. But I must say, to have them be able to do that measuring, uh, uh, D-class emanations through the Force? Okay, so not only do we have midichlorians that can be measured a la Phantom Menace, you can measure... The Force? But then again, I guess we had those paddles back in Jedi Academy Trilogy. Um, It just seems odd that you would have droids able to use devices to measure Force effects. But I guess if anybody should be able to do it, it would be the Jedi Order and their secret Sith-hunting Jedi Covenant within it. But it does seem rather odd to me. One thing that's also going to possibly strike others as odd... Uh, but is something that if you're familiar with the character isn't going to be odd to you, is uh, Master Vandar, who we see here, who is of Yoda's species. But his dialogue? Keep smiling, Master Vrook, if you remember how, and remember why we agreed to this, etc., etc. Ladies and gentlemen, he speaks, as they say in George Lucas and Love, forward. It seems uh-huh. that Yoda... And only certain other members of his species speak in that bizarre, screwed-up, twisted syntax that he uses. Um, and, of course, that's something we've known from the EU or the Legends continuity for a while because this character existed in the games. Um, but to see him here in the comics speaking forward uh, probably struck some people as odd or perhaps even a mistake, even though it wasn't. There is something unusual about Yoda's jargon, which makes me wonder <laughs> if if Yoda's first language wasn't basic because I've run into mm-hmm. people who have been students, um, for instance, whose first language say was Russian and they've got a very different syntax for their word order, which is what syntax is. Um, and because of that, when they speak English, sometimes their word order choices seem a little odd to our ears. Makes me wonder what exactly it was that Yoda used to speak that convinced him that basic slash English should be spoken in the way that he speaks it. Cause it certainly well, that- isn't everybody. It's not a species thing. 
Yeah, well, another thought, though, is it could be a family thing. I mean, Lucian is, is you know, the son of two other Jedi, and, and that's common at this point. So maybe Vandar, too, is one of those that was born a Jedi and, and grew up on Coruscant, and, whereas maybe, say, Yoda and Yaddle grew up on their respective homeworld, and therefore that's why they speak the way they do, because they came after they learned grammar, maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking way too far out there. But, yeah, that is one that, that didn't jump out at me when I was reading it the first time through. I didn't even catch the fact that he was not reading it like Yoda. <laughs> that's going to be child abuse, isn't it? You know, we are going to perfectly <laughs> make sure that our child grows up talking different than everybody else of his species that he will ever encounter. Um, somewhere in there, there's a child abuse charge in this uh, overly litigious society, <laughs> I am sure. So we move on to issue number two, Exalted Part 2. This is issue actually 30. It's issue two out of the trade paperback, but it's 30 of the overall series, meaning that we are at the point where we are 60% done as this issue wraps up, not counting nights of the Old Republic War. Um, we pick up in the morning. Zane and Griff are being held still by the the uh, Fiorans under Borjak and being held basically upside down, tied up uh, with ropes and hanging upside down, uh, being questioned at this point. But Feln, with Borjak kind of at his side, has taken the time to step away and contact Lucian about what's going on, um, uh, pointing out the fact uh, that Celeste Morn isn't there. The talisman, for whatever reason, isn't there. Uh, the thought is that Zane must have killed her and taken her key, possibly even the talisman. Lucian suggests that this means that it has already taken over Zane, making him even more of a threat. Uh, so they've got the recordings, they've got that in his little device, they've got the fact that they think Zane is a threat, and the order basically is to kill Zane if he is someone who appears to have gone over the edge in terms of how dangerous he actually is, as if they didn't already consider him at least somewhat dangerous already. But he also suggests that rather than allowing the Jedi Order to find out about the Sanctum and the stuff that's inside it, or to allow Zane to escape and have him or his comrades loot the storehouse for the Sith artifacts that he thinks Zane's going to use to bring about some kind of Sith attack, because they still think that Zane is this Sith threat that's out there, uh, that if it comes down to it, detonate charges that are set around the Sanctum and blow it up which is something that Borjak hears while he's there. He says, no, and Lucian winds up hearing it, though he's not seeing Borjak inside the uh, uh, the hologram or anything. Turns out that Hazen, right, back at the estate, Hazen has been listening in on all of this, uh, and he orders, no, you're not going to blow it up. Uh, you're going to keep it because it's taken us so long to actually gather these things together. We were trying to find a way... Uh, to kind of undo them and such. Lucian even points out, we were trying to destroy him anyway. But he basically says, you know what? No. You can evacuate and bring all the stuff that's in it back to the site on Coruscant. Um, and that's where we start to see a difference in Lucian's way of looking at the situation and Hazen's. Hazen is sort of like the, the chess master here, moving pieces across the board to get things done. We think for Lady Krinda at this point. Lucian, on the other hand only see sort of the narrow view of, we are going to stop the Sith, going to stop the Sith. They killed my daddy, we're going to stop the Sith. So Lucian here is, is freaking out about the fact that this isn't a museum, it's a disposal facility. And yet Hayes is like, no, it's a collection. Bring it on back uh, to Coruscant, uh, giving us some hints as to his later motivations. But this is something that Borjak uh, is not for, blowing it up. He's actually on Hazen's side on this whole issue. Uh, meanwhile, Zane is trying to convince 
the Fiorans, including Borjak when he finally arrives again, and Felm when he arrives again, that what they're doing is not the way to go. Uh, that the best thing for the Fiorans is to work with Zane to try to get the Covenant's influence out of there. Uh, Felm, for his part, is angry about the death of Ranate, which again isn't entirely Zane's fault, but we saw that happen back uh, in a previous arc, that Ranate died, that's when she let slip the name Krinda, and it sort of started Zane somewhat on this quest of finding answers using actual evidence instead of just sort of gut feelings and whatnot from time to time. Um, for his part, Felm wants to kill Zane, but Zane has been inside the Sanctum of the Exalted, and conveniently, they have a rule that anyone who's been inside, it's a rule in the Rhyme Fiorin, which is their official uh, like honor code, that anyone who's been inside the Sanctum can only be challenged in unarmed combat. Uh, that it's simply the way that things are done, and even the Exalted can't necessarily change that rule on a whim. So basically, Feln is going to beat the living crap out of Zane hand-to-hand. But Zane is able to get in a quick kick, uh, again, when the artwork completely can't seem to figure out the size of these people relative to each other, their heads relative to their bodies. Uh, Zane winds up stepping on Feln's face as if his face is three times as big as it's supposed to be. Uh, Zane jumps out, uh, grabs him by the little whisker tendril thing and is pulling on it, and again, it looks like he's much bigger than he should be. In any event, Zane is able to escape amid the crazy, distorted, you know, funhouse mirror hijinks that are going on. Um, but eventually, Fel winds up getting his grip on him anyway at this point, but is stopped from beating him to a pulp by the arrival of the Momaw Williwaw coming back in. Uh, the ship doesn't even really have to do anything, though, because it causes Feln to believe that Zane's pirate friends are back to raid the Sanctum the way that Lucian said, and he's so caught up in his anger and basically dark side actions at this point that uh, he sticks to the, the mantra of the Covenant, not on my watch, and he pulls the, uh, the detonator, presses the button to blow up the Sanctum, and it blows up way bigger than it should because of all the dark side artifacts inside it that, uh, in Zane's words, uh, the nasty stuff in there wouldn't like being blown up. And it winds up decimating uh, the village and burying a lot of the people that are in it. They, many of them will manage to survive. In fact, most or all of them will survive. But the explosion is enough to shock Feln. But again, he's using that Jedi Covenant rationale. Uh, he's saying, you know, I pushed the button, but you made me. So you, Zane, you caused all of this. Until finally, before we can do much about it, Borjak arrives uh, and stabs Feln in the back, uh, uh, knocking him down. He says, you know, you're only allowed to challenge me in unarmed com... What the... Sorry. You alright? Okay. Um, you're only allowed to challenge me in unarmed combat. How are you stabbing me? Well, see, the rule was anybody who's been in the Sanctum can only be challenged in unarmed combat because of the Sanctum's holiness, but the Sanctum just got blowed up! Therefore, yeah, the rules are changing, and the Fiorans basically stab him to death. You get one of those moments of, you know, the crowd coming around almost like they're vampires or zombies or something, and, and Felon's body falling amid the pile. As the story ends, um, we get some positive things before we shift briefly back off to see Lucian's side of things. Uh, most of the folks have survived. Most of the Fiorans have survived. Borjak is now in charge. They get rid of Felon's lightsaber that Marn Hieroglyph was able to save and give to Zane. Uh, Zane takes his lightsaber back from Borjak, 
and they're pretty much ready to go, except now they have no evidence, or so they think. Turns out that the Moomaw brothers, against Zane's wishes, filled up that laundry container, that big old suitcase, with a whole bunch of Sith artifacts. So that stuff is going to be their evidence to the Jedi Council of what the Jedi Covenant is doing. But that's not the end of the story, not the end of the issue. We shift briefly back to Coruscant to the Dre estate to see what's going on, and Lucian seems kind of morose at this point. He's been drinking a little bit, and Quinilla and Zamar, two more members of the Covenant, come in. They're freaking out because now not only is Ranate dead, so is Feln. Um, and, of course, the next in line is supposed to be Zamar killed on a Republic ship uh, by friendly fire at this point. Um, Lucian decides to basically uh, manipulate the situation. He's getting in touch with Admiral Saul Carath aboard the Swiftsure back at Coruscant. And he has convinced him that Zane is on the way there, but not to deliver evidence or anything, that Zane is on the way to lead a raid of Coruscant for the Mandalorians. So the Admiral, who already has a grudge against him anyway, is going to prepare a blockade to stop Zane from getting there, therefore fulfilling what the Covenant wants in the first place, either killing him or capturing him. But as Zamar is sent to Coruscant to take part in this, um, they've mentioned the whole issue of how he's supposed to die next in that whole Rogue Moon vision. And he says, you know, I was the next to die in space with the Republic Navy by friendly fire. You can't go, Zamar. You can't. You can't run towards it, nor it seems can I run from it. But running may not be the only option. We start to get the sense that maybe Zemar is the weak link in the Jedi Covenant chain, and this is someone who might be able to be turned, if not uh, against the Covenant, then towards the truth, and willing to perhaps hear Zane's side of things uh, and expose what needs to be exposed. With that, Exalted ends, but not the trade paperback. Yeah, and Zamar, I this is when I was kind of like, what is he going to do? Because, you know, you definitely had that feeling like there was an alternate motive or an alternate purpose of his plans beyond what Lucian wanted. Uh, going back to the point where Lucian was telling uh, Felon to uh, blow up the place, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that the code phrase for blow the place up was execute option Osis. Or Osis. I, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing, like, you know, because we know that, that Osis is the uh, the repository world for the Jedi where they collect all sorts of stuff, too. So the thought that they might even have this as a backup plan for their own items is kind of interesting in and of itself. It's like, yeah, because there's definitely a different style to this era's Jedi than what we see with Yoda and even Luke's Jedi later in Legends. So it's kind of cool to see how that played out. I will admit, though, when Hazen's hologram showed up and he goes... Well, let's see, you, you had uh, the one for a feeling that was on the planet when he yells no. When Lucian says, you know, we're going to blow it up, the one guy says no. Felon, he even says, that's serious. Do we really need to? And then Lucian goes back, we have no choice. Remember our motto, not on my watch. Are you alone, Flynn? I thought I heard someone say no. And that's when Hazen says that you certainly did. But at this point. You're assuming it's the other Fionn in the room. And then you turn over and you're like, oh, and of course, you know, Hazen explains why. You know, and he talks about the whole fact that, you know, I've been at the Dre estate. I've been monitoring this channel and it's a good thing. And, you know, and that that I I almost wonder if that was too much of a tip off at that moment, having Hazen show up like he did. Like it serves to add some of the reason why, you know, Felon wouldn't be just automatically blowing the place up. But 
I don't know. Like, there's a part of me that kind of wonders at time to time again, like, if that was one of those giveaway moments. I mean, there were some things that went right over my head and other things that I picked up on right away. And I, I really think that this point with Hazen's character, before we get to the rest of the arc, I really had a bad feeling about that guy. <laughs> like, I don't trust this guy as far as I could throw him. Uh, another interesting aspect, though, that I really enjoyed was, you know, I mentioned that Griff's character does a lot of really cool and, and weird, funny things, right? Well, at one point when oh, you were mentioning it, Nathan, when uh, Zane's jumping up on Flynn's face and his face looks really big and stuff, when uh, when Zane jumps down, Griff turns to the other phone and then he goes, what does the rhyme Fiora say about uh, fighting dirty and running away? Nothing. <laughs> so then, all of course, you know, Zane takes off and. You know, even though the banter between Zane and Griff is great, sometimes it's just Griff that delivers. I mean, Zane doesn't even have to actually do anything aside from just do what he's doing. So that worked out really cool. And then, of course, when you have that moment of it blowing up and stuff, that was a cool. I, I like the way it was drawn, the way the mountainside and everything lit up. It was good. And the fact that, that at this point, like, Felon's eyes, I don't know. He seemed to have Sith eyes almost all the way through this comic. And I don't know if that was intentional, if that was just the way his species eyes were supposed to be drawn. But I definitely got that feeling like he was definitely being drawn into darkness by the way his eyes were being drawn and his face. You know, he was always angry. Looked that the, the, there was always this grimace or just rage across his face at all times. So you got that feeling that most of these guys in this circle are just completely overrode with their emotions at this point. And the fact that they're all starting to fall like dominoes and stuff, it, you could see the emotional buildup there for them as well, especially when you get to that end when you've got uh, Zamar talking and stuff. But I, I, you know, you mentioned it all again, the fact that when Felon's sitting there and he's like, you know, I've been stabbed. Remember the rhyme for Owen? I'm unarmed. You can't fight me with those. I've been in the sanctum. There is no sanctum. You destroyed it. Now we're changing the rules. And I, I was expecting the next panel, honestly. And I love the fact that they throw in the no. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've complained and moaned about Lucas adding the no to Vader and stuff, but in the comic forums and other stuff like that, seeing it, I, I it's as good as a, I got a bad feeling about this. And again, on Griff, the aspect of how Griff has this uncanny ability to be basically the Zane that the Covenant has been fearing. You know, I mean, uh, when Felon's getting stabbed to death, <laughs> Griff's like, "Oh, I nearly forgot." <laughs> You need a lightsaber? I had a minute. He had he managed to steal Flynn's lightsaber. And so you find out as this keeps going along that Griff's the one that makes the decisions that end up getting people killed. And everybody's been thinking it was Zane. And so it's kind of funny that these two have been going along together. And the fact that Griff couldn't be felt in the force by these seers and stuff. It's like, oh, that'll come into play most likely next issue. But the way it goes down and the way it's interspersed throughout this entire trade paperback was brilliantly done. I think the one thing about this issue that gets me, I like it's it's delving deeper into the darker side of the Covenant, the lengths to which they're willing to go. Uh, we really kind of did need Hazen, I think, to show up to remind us of the character, given the fact um, that we're going to see the division between him and Lucian by the time we get to Vindication. We're building up to that point. Uh, it's kind of like in Babylon 5, you need to make sure you see the shadows a little bit or reminded of them right before they finally make their appearance and the shadow war and everything begins and all. Um, but as cool as some of the imagery is here, despite the fact that he can't seem to figure out proportions on these characters to save his lives, Bong Dezo is really going over the top with some of this. Um, there's a moment that I still can't figure out. Okay, 
Um, the mountain, the, the sanctum on the mountain blows up. My village, my people, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, he's standing by the fire, kind of like Maul in uh, uh, the season finale a couple of seasons ago on the Clone Wars and everything. He's by his strange horse-looking thing. You know, my mount, where's my lightsaber? When I don't like the rules, I change them, and I want... And he's standing there, basically grabbing Zane by the cloak, um, his hand reaching into the bag. I guess what we're supposed to be seeing here is that his hand is reaching into the bag, and he's pulling out a bone blade instead of his lightsaber because the lightsaber has been removed at this point. I'm assuming that's supposed to be the lightsaber was removed by Griff, but until just now, each time that I've read it, I, I guess I haven't noticed him reaching inside because it's, you know, and I want, and then he's looking out at a, a, a blade in his hand, a, a bone in his hand, and I keep thinking that he, what, did he get stabbed and not realize that he's pulling it out? If so, if not, where's the blood? So is he really, is it, are we supposed to believe basically that Griff got to the bag, stole the lightsaber, and therefore that's why when he reaches in there, he's not able to pull out the saber, he pulls out the bone, and it just happens to be convenient that the bone he pulls out is the same material, the same bone material, that he then gets stabbed in the back with from Borjack. Is that all we're to make of that? Because the first couple times I read it, that panel didn't make sense to me. I think I've got it now. Well, Borjack's had that weapon. It's it's a jaw blade. It's a, a knife that he's made from a jawbone of a creature. And he's had that. It was He was fiddling with it when Zane was captured originally. So you'd seen him with it. When when Felon reaches in and pulls it out, the impression I got was that Griff put the stick or bone knife into there so he reached in to grab where his saber was and griff pulled a sleight of hand the bag still had the right material you reach in it still got the thing he pulled out it's not what you thought it was while he's doing that he gets stabbed and that's when he does the. you don't see the stabbing you just see him pull it out and you see then you just see a little bit of of uh, balak or whatever his name was right behind him and what who and so that was that was the way I saw it. I just thought Griff had, had put in a proxy, kind of like the old Indiana Jones. I'm going to take the hand, uh, little gold head and put a sandbag in place. Okay, for some reason that just that slipped by me each time until just now going through the issue that he was reaching into the bag and that was what he apparently pulled out of the bag. Um, because so much of that is focused on him just kind of standing there, you know, griping at Zane. Um, all right, so that moves us into the third issue as we shift art to Alan Robinson who does draw things proportionally, but only seems to be able to draw people with their mouths closed, gritting their teeth, or in kind of those open-mouth, weird looks that you get, you know, pretty much any time you try to take a candid picture of something as opposed to a posed picture, where taking a still image of anybody while they're talking always looks a little weird in terms of the shape of their mouths. Mouth-breather-ish. Yeah, he gets that going a lot. Um, And has some odd line choices. But suffice to say... We are picking up back at the at uh, uh, the Jedi Council chambers of Dre, right? He's had his stuff moved over from getting out of the Jedi High Council and whatnot. He is musing about his father, Barriss and Dre, who had died during the Sith War uh, when he was very, very young. And the fact that, frankly, the office should have been his. The position should have been his. In a lot of ways, he's got the position because of that, Um it should, he said, it should feel like getting this position is a vindication, <laughs> as they would say on a, uh, the Everything Wrong With, roll credits, because we're getting the title of the trade paperback, if not this particular arc, it's the next arc. Uh, and, he's, you know, he just doesn't feel right, because his father isn't there. His father should be in the position, not him. Uh, we then jump to basically a, 
kind of an underworld type of area, a seedy cantina, in which Vrook and Vandar, who of course are the two Jedi Council members we saw recently, the ones that come from the video games and whatnot, and they're meeting with someone on behalf of Zane. But the people they're meeting with, this starts to push us towards um, the games and everything, are Alex Gwynguar Gesimus and Shell Jellivan. Um, Shell, of course, uh, we saw her recently in a previous arc with old Days Nights crossover, or not crossover, the Days Nights, a, a maxi arc with little mini arcs inside it. And Alec, at this point, is revealing the fact that, okay, his name was always just Alec, just Alec of Quelly. Squinguar Gesimus presumably was the name of his home village, and on his immigration records, it turned it into his last name. But his name was simply Alec, and now he has taken to shaving his head as a disguise, tattooed it with the little uh, bars on uh, the top of his head, two bars basically on the top of his head, so that if you're looking down on him, presumably it looks like an equal sign, and then some more triangular ones on the side of his head, uh, and he's taken to going by Malik instead of Alec. Ding, 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 ding! Look, here's Darth Malik, everyone, from the Knights of the Old Republic video game. One of those kind of moments of revelation that this is going to be a character that eventually will wind up with the revanchist Revan, and that's linking the games to the comic series that bear the same name. But they're there to basically say, look, yeah. Zane is on his way. He wants to come in. He's got some proof of something that will rock the Jedi Order, but he needs to be able to get here safely, and we know that there's this big old blockade out there under Kareth trying to kill Zane. Speaking of the blockade, Kareth is there as is Zamar, as he was instructed to be, the member of the Jedi Covenant. Uh, and they've got this new setup going where basically all of the different ships in this blockade are linked to the Swiftsure's computer. So the tactical computer is keeping an eye on the situation and the different changes in it. And as things change, it adjusts the line automatically into basically what's supposed to be essentially a perfect blockade. Though I gotta kinda wonder if the blockade is basically like a ring around the planet, very much like a ring around, say, Saturn, couldn't Zane just, you know, come from one of the many other angles of approach? I mean, is this something where the entire ring is going to shift based on who's coming in? Because right now, it seems like they're kind of thinking in uh, two-dimensionally. They're not thinking about the fact that in space, uh, you can't just go left, right, forward, and backwards. You can go up and down. I'm um, thinking it's going to have to shift myself because that was the same first thing mm -hmm. that struck me. I'm like, wait, that's only one ring. It's got to. Um, so it seems that Zamar is starting to have a little bit of uh, uh, question, as we saw back in the previous issue, about the Covenant. Uh, when talking about the blockade, he mentions about uh, how there may be a danger in everyone working in lockstep. And he then says, no matter how good the prophecy. You know, it, he's starting to realize that maybe there's more to the situation than just the way that the Covenant has been handling things. He even asks Kareth what he thinks about Zane and, and gets a kind of snarky reply in return. So the Muma Willowa arrives, and unfortunately, the blockade is there to meet them. Of all the people aboard, the one that really doesn't seem willing to help is Roland, who of course we will find later isn't actually Roland. Um, but Roland is... You know, saying, no, we've taken risks to help your friends, but this is too much kind of stuff. Um, uh, he has been training Jeriel to be a warrior and such, um, and she's just looking for something to believe in again, something to do again now that Camper is gone, thanks to the Days Nights storyline. Turns out 
that one of the commanders of the incoming Starfighters coming in from that blockade is Carthonassi, who, of course, we saw previously. Uh, he has now been busted down to flying this ship as opposed to having his owner. His uh, individual ship, his little cargo ship, is actually aboard the Mumaw Willowaw at this point, uh, uh, having been uh, taken from their previous encounter. Uh, they can't... Karth can't get the ships not to attack. He doesn't really have a choice because they've recognized who Zane is. Uh, but in the midst of the firefight, Zane and... Uh, Zane, with an enormous, crazy wide mouth stance, uh, uh, supported by Jeriel speaking in an enormous, crazy wide mouth stance, um, figure out that what they really need is another ship. So they crash the Mumaw Willowaw into the docking bay of one of the ships, only for it to turn out that... You know, Jeriel's aboard and a few others, but not Zane and Griff. They've managed to get inside the old cargo hauler uh, that was Karath's, uh, or Karath's, uh, not Karath's, that is Karth's, that was aboard the Willowaw. And since it's a Republic ship, they did, the Republic just kind of assumes that it must have been reassigned to someone else. Karth recognizes who's actually flying it and lets them go on through to get down to Coruscant, helping Zane out as best as he can. Uh, as they are leaving, though, as they're leaving the ship, Zamar, who has been goaded by Karath into going out there in a ship himself, um, even going to the point of joking, well, we won't shoot you, you know, which is how he's supposed to die, die by friendly fire, Zamar has instead come down to the surface and he stops them on their way off the ship carrying that, that suitcase slash uh, laundry container full of the Sith artifacts that are going to be used as proof. Meanwhile, heading towards that rendezvous point are Malik slash Alec, Shell, and the two Jedi Council members that they're working with here. Um, and the thought is that this stuff may not actually be enough. Um, it may not be enough to prove anything against the Covenant. The, the conversation basically runs, and I think this, this bears repeating, so I'll do it kind of quickly here. Um, Vrook says... It's in perfect keeping with the rest of the night. Chasing shadows. I may or may not care for Lucian on the High Council, but Phantom Jedi agents? And Bandar's who he's talking to, the, uh, the Yoda-esque character. You saw what my accountant discovered about the Dre Trust. Carrick's father, you mean. Some source. Be honest. How hard would it be to create shadow agents with that wealth? You complained yourself. Jedi are reported killed on remote missions all the time without investigations. And Krinda Dre has trained Jedi for 30 years without our supervision. You know how thin we were after the Sith War. We were happy for the help. How many remain loyal to her now? And Malik asks, is anything impossible when the forces opposing it are asleep? Kind of fits into things we're going to see in the KOTOR game. And Brook yeah. continues, you would know something about Jedi operating without leave, I bet. But never mind. Even with what Shell told us of Ranate, we could never bring this to the Council. You don't know what Krinda means to the Council, son. She's one of the few Sith War heroes we have left. You accuse her, you won't rock the order, you'll tear it apart. And Kareth has told everyone Zane's a Mandy spy. The boy could bring back a cartload of real Sith artifacts, and the Drays would say the Mandalorians supplied them. No, no, it's not enough. Shell asks what it'll take. And Vandar answers, One of their number must turn, Shell. Someone who's seen everything from the beginning. Someone must raise his voice. And with that impeccable timing of storytelling, coincidence, and perhaps just the fact that Zane has that kind of force luck, Zamar shows up, lightsaber, 
held to Zane and Griff, who are on their knees on the ground, and says, Someone might. I have brought Zane Carrick and Marn Hieroglyph to justice. The form it takes depends on what you say to me now. And we get this great image, albeit kind of goofy looking, thanks to the artist, um, that gives you the sense that there's a real menace there, but maybe a chance for answers, as the little bottom corner says, next, vindication. Although to me, the shock of that moment is much less the image of them on the ground, but the previous panel, at the bottom of the previous page, because, again, this artist does things kind of in a cartoony way, and when you see the characters, Malik and Shell, though not as much, and Vrook, and Vandar, with his ears kind of turned down, all have this wide-eyed, uh, no eyelids showing it all, deer-in-the-headlights look as Zamar shows up. Um, again, it seems like one of his stock-and-trade type of moves here, where his art tends to have these bulging eyes. He did the same thing on the previous page at the bottom um, with Brooke, when being asked if anything impossible, or if anything's impossible when opposing forces are asleep. Um, not a fan of the art in this one. But we finally reached a major turning point, and the stage is set for the Vindication arc, the first climax of the series. Yeah, and while the art on this one wasn't as great as the last one, it's still better than what we're going to get at some points going forward. There's some little things that I stopped to ponder. You know, at the beginning of this, when Lucian's looking at the picture of his dad, he's like, my father should be here. And, you know, Barrison Dre died fighting in the Sith. There's a picture of him like on a rock doing a, the unleashed Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, from episode two pose where he's got his lightsaber in his left hand held up high and he's got his armor on and there's all these Jedi around him. They're all raising their lightsabers up and stuff. Some of them got like a battle cry and some of them are smiling. But I just thought it was funny because like it's this framed picture and in the picture in the far background, you see the fleet coming in. It's like, wait. You're in the middle of the battle and you're something. I mean, obviously, this has to be a painting because I couldn't imagine them like taking a still of a photo in the middle of a battle like this. But it's kind of funny. Like, like was this like one of those, you know, war type posters? What was the purpose of this? Was this just for the family? I mean, like, it seems very, very, I don't know, showman like because I don't know. It's like a rally cry for a movie poster or something. And I just found that a little bit odd. <laughs> like. It it really I stopped on that and thought about it for a little while and it was kind of interesting. I like the stuff with Malik and how he explained his name and everything like that. One of the really cool things with Admiral Karath though, uh, he's got a cane now, and while he uses the cane, he's holding it and stuff. There's a moment later where while him and and Vax are talking, where he does this really weird and almost well, it's full on lame. Okay, uh. Let's see. The chain is working perfectly. They cleared one firing arc and they're in another. That he is definitely the craft master Lucian Saab Karak aboard. And at this point, Karath, he's doing, and I kid you not, he's doing the, the grab your right arm and uh, pull it in and yeah, like kind of the reverse of a fist bump. <laughs> so it's hilarious because he's ducking down to do it. He's like, he didn't bring enough ships. Like, yeah. And you're like, really? Even that monster can't punch a hole in this line. Yeah! Like, the way he's doing it just cracked me up to no end. Like, what in the hell is this guy doing? Very, but <laughs> as funny as it is, and as cool as, as a quick little quirky art moment is, I gotta wonder if that was actually something that was in the script. Because it seems quirky and kind of funny, but so completely out of character. So yeah. entirely... It'd be like if the Pope... 
is walking around blessing people and happens to come up to somebody that he knows, and rather than blessing the person, he does a fist bump and moves on. It doesn't really fit the characterization that we have here. Um, It's just one of those kind of odd moments where I'm like, is that meant to be an Easter egg? Or is that meant to actually be what the character is doing? And we're supposed to take this as part of his personality that he's so gung-ho about taking out Zane that he's got that kind of thing going on. Um, Well, I was thinking it's two parts. It's it's not so much taking out Zane, but the how. I kind of got the feeling that the the linking of the system, the slaving of the ships was working. And so he was kind of like, yeah, it's working. You ain't going to escape. I mean, I, I kind of got that moment of like, he was just so caught up in, in the new technology. The fact that Zane's there, they're going to catch him. But yeah, it was one of those moments where I saw him doing that fist bump and I just had to chuckle. I mean, it totally stopped me. Oh, I, and for what it's worth, though, I mean, it would make sense if he's really kind of getting glee out of the idea of destruction and the way that they show the next panel, he's got kind of an odd look in his eyes and the big grimace on his face, though, granted, a lot of characters in this particular issue in this couple of arcs have grimaces on their faces. Um, we have to remember that Kareth winds up being the person working for Revan and Malik, who is one of the villains of the Knights of the Old Republic video game. So in a sense, this is sort of setting up that bloodlust in the character to make it make sense that he would work with basically Sith. True. And and then it works out well. Another interaction, and you touched on it earlier, was when Onasi comes across uh, Zane. And, you know, he's like, "I, I recognize that voice. And that's Zane. This is Lieutenant Onasi of Lance Squadron. I repeat, identify yourself. This this is Shad Camper. Remember Onasi? That's what I was afraid of. And Zane looks over to Griff. Our luck's turned, Griff. No, it hasn't. You shouldn't have come here. Turn it around. Can't do that. I'm delivering evidence to clear my name. I guess I can't ask you to... No, you can't. I lost my bridge post for losing you before, and fleets just recognize your ship anyway. It's too late. I'm sorry. Weapons hot, Lancers. We got an intruder here. And the next panel was the one that I was saying, he's all... Shoot to disable, Lancers, and one of the other, like his uh, wingmen. Disable? Karth, that's a Tanapi murder machine. They could take us apart before we... Swift sure wants them for questioning, Lance, too. Just do it now. And I love the I love that they call it the uh, Tanapi murder machine, because, like, I didn't put anything beyond the ship. I mean, the ship was a weird-looking ship, but to find out that, like, it's a ship that actually makes people stop a little bit, like, whoa, dude, do you know what you're putting us up against? Like, I thought that was a cool little interaction there and the way that that played up. Uh, I liked that, that that worked out really nice. And, you know, as far as references go, kind of cool to see that there. Tapani murder machine. Tapani, the Tapani system, system, of course, is uh, the setting for that huge boxed uh, RPG scenario back from the West End Games era called Lords of the Expanse. The first one that gave us names for the months of the 10-month a Star Wars calendar before they changed it over to 12. So kind of cool to see Topani getting a little name drop here. Yeah. And then another one of those subtle hints, you know, with Roland's character this time, Roland's like the gambit has failed human. We should do whatever we must to escape. I'm trying to prove I didn't kill innocent people. Roland doing it now isn't going to help. And since when do you care about saving your own skin? The Roland I knew would take any risk to find the truth. Like what we're doing now. Now, Zane's comments are telling, but the most telling thing of all is what Roland himself says. The gamble has failed human. Up until this point, Roland was a human as well. I mean, so that was one of those things like, you know, I didn't catch this when I was reading it the first time through, but other people did. And they pointed it out to me later and I came back and I was like, holy cack, you're right. And that's one of those things where, you know, if you're paying attention, it's subtly right there in front of you the whole time. 
but I, I love the way John does it. I mean, he does it in a brilliantly subtle way. I mean, yeah, it might be obvious to some of you guys out there, and I'm not saying, you know, anything for or against, but at the same time, a lot of people like me out there, it flew right over our heads for a long time. Like, I think I was getting close to the very end. I think when the issue came out, I knew it wasn't Roland. I still didn't know who he was, but I knew on the forum boards and stuff, there were other people that knew who he was, and I was avoiding that spoiler at all costs because I was just like, okay, it's there. And I was going back over the old stuff and trying to find these hints that people were talking about. And honestly, you know, as as plain as day as they are now, knowing who that character is, going back over it at that time, I couldn't discover it. I It just kept slipping past me. I did not put those two and twos together. And then, boom, right there, you know, you have another little subtle hint. Yeah, this is something that kind of gave me hope when I started to realize there were these hints in there all along. Because for the longest time, it felt like this was a series all designed to build up to vindication. And the end of vindication is the end of the story. And yet, because it was successful, we're going to keep on going and producing more stories, more arcs of this. And you start to think, oh, does this mean they're going to start over from scratch in a lot of ways? Does this mean that, okay, they're going to continue going, but they're going to grab things from the past that weren't actually meant to be hints of anything and turn them into hints of those things so it feels like it's bigger? Um, I'm reminded, again, making the Babylon 5 analogy, um, Babylon 5 was originally designed as a five-year story. When they realized they were about to be canceled after four, before TNT swept in to sort of save the day, they basically took what would have been the fourth and fifth seasons and compressed them into the fourth season. So then after the fourth season aired and TNT sweeps in and says, yeah, not only are we going to pick you up and air widescreen versions of the show, we're also going to give you a prequel movie and these other movie versions. We're going to set you up for a spinoff and hey, we're going to give you season five. A big chunk of the story they were going to tell in season five had already been told. So you wound up with a tacked-on fifth season that, while feeding the overall story to a degree and building off of threads previously existing, kind Mm -hmm. of felt like it wasn't intended. It was sort of like a long denouement to end the thing, or a long epilogue, rather than truly as heavy a part of the story as it was meant to be. And I always kind of felt like Knights of the Old Republic after Vindication was kind of like that. Until we get to the very, very end... And we get that uh, secret journal of Dr. Demigol that that has his perspective on all these different issues that winds up basically showing that, yes, these were things that were purposely seeded in even before Vindication. He was thinking in the long run of that second major arc that's only being hinted at here. Uh, It gives me a little bit more faith in the plan for the series because uh, it really for a long time struck me as feeling as though it was artificially continued. Now, Knights of the Old Republic War... That's an artificial continuation that didn't need to be there. Um, and it sort of changes the way I look at this series as feeling like it was kind of like Crusade to Babylon 5 and that it brought the hole down a little bit because it didn't need to be there. Like Legacy War needed to be there. Um, but it's good to know that the second climax that we're coming to is not something that was just planned once Vindication was done and they realized the series was still going. It was something planned well, well in advance, almost since the beginning of the series. Yeah, and another little moment that I want to touch on here, you know, the crew that Zane's been running with, as Nathan pointed out, Camper's gone, uh, their their Lord Lifter droid, I think it was LB, he's gone, and they picked up Slissick, and, you know, Slissick doesn't have much of a role, but there is this great moment at the end, which Nathan's talked some of it about, but Griff, Zane, they're coming off of Kara's ship, the little one that they stole, 
And, you know, Zane's like, Slick may not be the best starship thief in the galaxy, but he's certainly the fastest. And then Griff's like, until his panic attack starts, I had to give him some credits and had to send him to a hotel. And then Zane goes, you know, Griff, you don't have to be here for the rest of this either. I'll deliver the evidence on my own. I've caused you enough trouble. Griff looks back. He's carrying the, the suitcase with one hand. I made my bet back on Terra, Zane. Got to protect my state. Let's go. And Zane picks up the other side of it, and they start walking. And they hear this clunk. I thought you said Slissick left was... I thought you said Slissick left the ship. I thought I did. Slissick, I told you. I am not Slissick. And the look on their faces, they both turn around like... I mean, it's in a comic, and yet it still felt like, and I think that this is one of the things I love about John Jackson Miller's style. Sometimes I feel like I'm watching episodes of Buffy and stuff, like the, the way the humor plays out and stuff. And this is one of those moments, like, even though it's in panel form, I got the feeling of it happening in a live action, of them looking at each other, turning and looking back. Like, oh, and of course, you know, then we go forward to the next scene that you'd already talked about and, and did a great job of explaining all of it. I want to only talk about the fact that when Vandar is talking about uh, Kinder Dre training the Jedi for 30 years without supervision. That is such a bomb blowing up in my face when I saw that. It was like, holy cow. So the Sith War that Exar Kun kicked off wiped out the Jedi so much that she was one of the few Jedi who were able to train so many students and they let her do her own thing, which kind of makes you wonder, were there other groups that were doing this kind of stuff? Because one of the things, you know, when we finally get to the end of this, like, you had that feeling like, there was something more for one aspect of the order when it was all said and done. And, and that made me kind of wonder, you know, if she was left alone for 30 years and, you know, we know there are characters from the game and stuff that were left alone. How many other Jedi were out there just, you know, running rampant, doing their own thing, having their own council, their own covenants and, and so forth. I mean, it was it's really that moment of, wow, this high council really needs to get their Sith and get it because right now they're. I don't know, man. They're, they're letting a lot of things slide past their radar, and it just kind of makes you think, you know, what else is sliding past them right now? Yeah, of the as far as the, the image there of Zane and Griff and, and the wide eyes goes right along with the bug-eyed deer-in-a-headlights look, though, that we got on those last couple of pages. I'll tell you exactly, it, it, until you pointed it out there with Griff and Zane, I'm not sure I could have put my finger on what this reminds me of, but I finally figured out what it is about Alan Robinson's drawing style that bothers me a little bit. This is a serious Star Wars story going into dark territory leading into the climax of this half of the series, and he's drawing Scooby-Doo. That's <laughs> basically what this is. Anytime you have them, tell me when you see the... One of their number must turn, Shell. Someone who's seen everything from the beginning. Someone must raise his voice. Someone might. Then when you look at the characters' faces, you don't hear, zoink! <laughs> That's Jeez. what he's drawing. He's drawing Scooby-Doo for Star Wars that doesn't really fit the mood of the piece. That's the issue that I've got going on with Robinson's artwork. I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but it's not Buffy I'm thought of. It's... Scooby-Doo, which I guess means that Griff is scrappy. Well, and that works, though, because, I mean, one of Joss Whedon's styles with Buffy was that they were the Scoobies. So, I mean, yeah, that works. And, you know, Zamar, he's a character that at this point, like, I, I go back and forth. I'm like, you know, is he going to be good? I, I kind of get that feeling, you know, this is going to be our good guy, you know, at this moment. And yet the way he words things, you know, he's like, 
where he talks about bringing them to justice. He goes, the form it takes depends on what you say to me now. And I mean, I, I, I go over that again. It's like, well, what could they possibly say to you that's going to make you decide to kill them? Because, I mean, it looks like you're ready to kill them. And yet I kind of got the impression you weren't there to kill them. So, I mean, it definitely got me going with the ball rolling with what is driving him at this point. I mean, obviously he doesn't want to die and he's trying to th- find ways around that. But, you know, he's questioning everything else. I, mean, I really wanted to know what his motives were at this moment. And I mean, I was I was hooked. I mean, this was like the end of Empire Strikes Back. I'm like, oh, oh what's going to happen next? And then, of course, we move into next episode. So we won't be covering the rest of that today. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Film. Stay tuned next week for part two of our Vindication coverage. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe genre or the canon one without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan, zoinks! <laughs> Sing! Thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the audience will be making a jump to also listen to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, which they really should. Jinkies! Jinkies!